I'm Christian Chiller. Welcome to my podcast. Good afternoon, good evening, good morning, good night, good whatever time zone you're in to you all. Welcome along to another Chinchilla Squeaks, a weekly roundup of news and geeky news and tech news and gaming news and Chris news and I don't know, whatever I feel like covering. This week is pretty tech heavy and maybe those of you with very good ears amongst you will notice I'm on a different microphone. I'm not recording in my studio today. I'm recording from home on my backup mic. Probably very echoey. (laughs) That's unfortunately the apartment I live in. Very high roofs. Anyway, let's get started. We're going to start with a bit of a chunk, with a bit of a line of articles around, I guess, technology from the past. Near past, the far past, varying pasts. First is an article from Scott Carey on InfoWorld, how Docker broke in half. And this is something that always fascinated me, especially a few years ago when I was going to more tech conferences and you would see lots and lots of discussion around containers, around container orchestration, et cetera, et cetera, with Kubernetes. But Docker was always strangely absent and strangely silent. And I often wondered why. And I think... What it came down to in my mind was whilst lots of people were using their open source community technology, not so many people really used their commercial products. And that was always a problem. And uh, this is an interesting article that goes a bit more in detail into what happened there, uh, how that situation emerged, when it occurred, why it occurred, and um, what they're trying to do about it now, including kind of bringing us bang up to date, some changes in the way that Docker Desktop now works. Um, I don't know if that's going to be enough. We will see. And just how much, I guess, Docker had kind of the, the rug pulled from under their feet by, well, basically by Kubernetes, but also, I suppose, in summary, other providers leveraging their technology better than they ever did or could. Um, and the conflict between Solomon Hike, the founder, and kind of his attitude to a more community way of doing things and then how the business people wanted to do things. And I think that all seems reasonable, but I guess they were so large and so high profile and so in the public eye that I suppose you're always going to fail harder or fall harder. Uh, Fail is a hard word, bad word maybe, Um, when people are all paying attention to you. I mean, it happens to many uh, technology companies, but people were paying a lot of attention to them. So yeah, for a little bit more background and and I guess what they're trying to do next because I sort of wonder what could happen to Docker. Like if Docker the company fails, well the the technology is is kind of kind of become an open standard now, I suppose. So it doesn't matter so much. And in fact many people are already moving away from Docker itself. But something like Docker desktop is still pretty pretty usable, pretty useful. There are alternatives to it now, but it's still my first tool of choice when I reach for running up a container of some description, but maybe it's time to start looking at alternatives in case that becomes kind of completely commercial or proprietary or, or whatever it may be, if it isn't already. <laughs> Going a little further back, this is an article from Increment from their August issue, which is the mobile issue from Ponima Apti, called And Then There Were Smartphones, with a wonderful graphic here 
of someone on a park bench using one of those old school phones with the big aerial box and then things like that. It's not actually a very long article. It could have been much longer, but uh, it summarizes, I suppose, through one person's journey, how they got into the mobile game, where they got their first phone from, um, what it was and how it evolved and what they have now and how expensive running phones used to be, I suppose, is the other summary of this. And I remember I actually had one of the first GSM pay-as-you-go smartphones in the – oh, no, not a smartphone, sorry – phones in the UK. I think it didn't even do SMS. That came later, just phone calls. I can't honestly remember how much it was to run, but it was fairly expensive. And obviously calling mobiles – this is the late 90s. It was also very expensive – then my first kind of feature phones. I think my favorite phone was always the Samsung T68i. And then my first smartphone was, I guess it was the iPhone 3G, I think was my first smartphone. That was actually the only iPhone I've ever owned as well. Um, yeah, and I, I don't know. I love reading about uh, history of devices and, and realizing how quickly things have evolved and where things came from. You know, the iPhone basically merged the Newton with um, with a phone. <laughs> Along the way, we had Palm Pilots. I remember those. I remember working at a company where we ordered hundreds of them and then sold them all on. And those things were kind of cool. I always wanted to have one, but I never really had any actual need. And then the BlackBerry, of course, which kind of combined the, uh, the PDA with a phone as well. It was very popular for a period of time. And then on and on from there. So for any of you old enough to remember this journey then I would highly recommend you have a trip down memory lane. And finally, in the historical section, an article from Distilled, which is Mozilla's blog, from Elsie Blanchard. Why are hyperlinks blue? Indeed. Well, by default, anyway. They're often not blue these days, but why were they blue? Why are they blue by default? And actually, it really does seem to be just because... um, the most popular browsers made them that way. <laughs> the story is somewhat uh, underwhelming. Um, I heard this about, um, I think someone made a documentary or wrote a book, I can't quite remember. I think it was a book where wizards play or something like that about the history of the internet. And I was reading the reviews of the book and um, <laughs> a lot of the reviews were kind of saying, it's just a bunch of nerds building technology. It's really not that interesting a story. And <laughs> so that was somewhat astute um, observation. And maybe it's similar here. Like, yeah, why hyperlinks blue? Because browsers made them blue. But anyway, it's another nice trip down memory lane, looking at how we got there and kind of who bought it in first. And that gets kind of hotly contested as you get closer and closer. What came before blue hyperlinks? Um, and that sort of thing. Um, there's lots of great screenshots as well. Uh, Windows 1.0, Project Xanadu, Hypercard, the World Wide Web, of course, Windows 3, Gopher, the Linux kernel, uh, Mosaic. And then, of course, we get to the classics, it's, uh, Netscape, Internet Explorer 1, etc., etc. And, uh, yeah. Um, and what happened in 1993 to suddenly make, in summary, basically, to make hyperlinks blue. No one knows. <laughs> Wonderful. Now kind of coming into the future of programming a little bit or the future of technology a little bit. This is from Thomas Smith on Better Programming. I actually uh, floated this article around some of my tech writer friends to get their opinions on it. I beta tested OpenAI's codex and results are spooky good. Um, 
So this is kind of the effect on programmers, but also the effect on, on tech writers, on, on creating documentation uh, from generated uh, sources. I think the summary, and I've covered this before on the show, is it gets you some of the way. It's definitely more of an assistant still, which is, which is good. Um, but it doesn't always do things the most efficient way or the best way. You still kind of need someone to polish it. And actually, uh, the, the opinions I got from a lot of people I spoke to was this is good. You know, everyone keeps saying, oh, you know, developers or whatever, tech writers, whatever technical people could focus less on the boring or repetitive tasks, the tasks that you do all the time, like building an API consumption service or something like that, and actually focus on the creative stuff um, and let the AI do that kind of repetitive parts for you. I think my main concern with that argument is I actually really wonder how many applications that people build really constitute of or consist of a lot of those more creative components and actually how many applications do comprise a lot of just the generic stuff that 95% of applications do. So whilst these highly skilled um, creative programmers might be in demand, they're kind of average jobbing developer on content management systems, um, process type systems and things like that, will they be out of work? Especially when they tend to be employed by the more penny-pinching companies that will probably look for any excuse to hire less people and it might produce not-so-good software, but I don't know if they would actually care. That's kind of where it starts to bother me a little bit. Interesting. (laughs) And finally, I covered uh, Afghanistan a little bit uh, last week. This is another article from Wired.co.uk from Chris Stokel-Walker, The Battle for Control of Afghanistan's Internet. Yeah, what is going to happen to the internet in Afghanistan? What will people let happen to it? A crucial question this article asks in that um, Afghanistan has its internet provided mostly by foreign companies. Um, Some might pull out because they don't want to deal with the regime. Some might not pull out because they want to make sure people have internet. What about the companies that provide services on top of that internet? Um, What will they do? What will they say? Will they push strongly? To keep things going, will they push or not care? I don't know how lucrative it is as a market. That's probably an important factor to think about. And also how much does the Taliban actually rely on the internet itself? If you shut it down completely, they also lose access to it. They're actually a fairly tech-focused organization. I don't really know what to describe them as. Um, So if they need it, it needs to exist somehow. And then, of course, if you just block certain things, there's always ways to get around that. So what's going to happen? And a lot of uh, freedom of um, freedom of uh, expression, freedom of expression, that doesn't sound quite right. It'll do for now. I'm tired. Uh, Activists in Europe and the US and and neighboring areas are starting to already kind of motivate around figuring out how to keep it going and not let the Taliban just shut it down. I think as with a lot of our things in Afghanistan right now, it's really going to be wait and see, but that doesn't mean we can't preemptively uh, assume what might happen and kind of get ahead of the game and, and, and help, I suppose, in some respects. So what have I been up to? I've actually been quite busy this past week. Uh, my article on my streaming setup, my audio and video, my streaming setup is live on my website on kristenschiller.com and also on Medium. Uh, if you're interested to know some of some of how 
Uh, I produce what you hear and see. Uh, equally, I have a post um, commissioned by Kong on using um, their service mesh and ingress controller for a Nextcloud instance. Uh, and actually coming next week will be how I run my own Nextcloud on a Raspberry Pi. <laughs> it's sat right next to me. Well, not right next to me, but about a meter away from me. On the video front, I did a hands-on with GraphCMS, a GraphQL-based uh, content API. Yeah, so-so. Um, I also had a uh, DevX5 with my colleague there, Ian Jennings, when we looked at Rust program- programming language. That was quite fun. I really enjoyed going through that. Um, oh, yes, and last Friday I did a solo adventure of Iron Swan. That, I mean, I've split my solo adventure into two kind of outputs, as it were. You can watch the live just uh, play session on Twitch. That's twitch.tv slash Christian Chiller. And then I'll put together an edited version with kind of a review of the game, which will come out at variable times, depending somewhat on the complexity of the game on my YouTube channel. That I'm still working on because Iron Swan is a bit longer. So it'll take me a bit more time to get through the manual and kind of get my thoughts together. But that will be coming up soon. Um, I think that's basically it for this week. Um, bom, 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 bom. I've been adding back, adding a lot of uh, transcripts from shows from the past few months as well. If you want to read those, <laughs> you don't know. Uh, if you ever have any links for me that you'd like me to cover, please contact me. You can find my contact details and also information on how to support me and the work I do at chrischinchilla.com. Um, there's a couple of options there uh, GitHub sponsors uh, buy me a coffee merchandise um, yeah also affiliate links on some of my articles so if you like what I do um, keep an eye on that and there will be news of a Patreon and an associated Discord server where we will have a lot of back chat around what I produce soon but until next time thank you very much for joining me